Welcome to the USA Hockey Magazine podcast with your host, editor of USA Hockey Magazine, Harry Thompson. Welcome to another USA Hockey Magazine podcast. We're here at the Advanced Officiating Symposium in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, it's day two, and uh, we just got off the listen to Don Adam, who just got off the stage uh, doing his second, I believe, uh, presentation of the weekend. They're, they're putting him to work. Uh, Don is a, obviously a longtime uh, USA Hockey official and uh, just uh, just has has done so much and contributed so much to the game. So we're really happy that Don has uh, taken a couple minutes to talk to us today. Don, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, and it's good to see you again, Harry. All right, so, so Don, tell me a little bit about uh, you know being here at this uh, advanced officiating symposium. You were at the first one, and then now being here at this one. Uh, just what does it mean to you to be a part of an event like this? I think I've got a long, long history of being involved with USA Hockey, going back to the um, the, the camps that were created early on for the officials themselves. Um, that turned into district officiating seminars. And now USA Hockey has had the ability to create this new, um, what I would consider almost to be a, a super seminar um, when you have 200 people. And um, so it's a, it's a great opportunity to be involved with USA Hockey, to stay involved with USA Hockey, um, to travel to different parts of the country, to meet different officials from, from different places. So it's something that, that I don't think I've ever said no to USA Hockey unless there was just, uh, you know, too big a conflict somewhere. But my, my first answer to USA Hockey is always yes, and it, it's always very rewarding to be involved. That's funny you say that because earlier today we did an interview with uh, Jessica LeClerc and she always says that when Matt Leifra sends her an email, her first response is yes, and then she tries to figure out what is it she said yes to and how she's going to make that work. So it seems like that's a that's a, a characteristic of a lot of a lot of you you people who have, who have done so much for the game over the years. Yeah, and I, and I listened to Jessica talk about that, and I, I felt the exact same way when she she mentioned that she captured that perfectly. Um, but I, I think that that, um, you know, when people have that attitude or that thought process, it just shows what USA Hockey has done for them. You know, it's it's more a matter of giving back, and you want to give back to an organization that gave so much to you. Speaking of, of, of giving you opportunities and things like that, you, you had the great opportunity of working not one but two Olympic Winter Games. Uh, what, do you, what are some of your, your fondest memories of, of working? I believe it was, what, 94 and... Uh, 92. 92 and 98? In 98. Right. So what, what, what are some of your fond memories of that? Well, they, they were completely different. They were completely different for a lot of different reasons. Um, the, the first Olympics in Albertville, France was, you know, incredibly exciting because it was my first first Olympics. You know, when you strive for something for so long, you know, you can't replace that first time that it actually happens. Um, so it, it was an amazing location. The, the tournament went very well. It was a first time for everything. And it was just a, a fantastic, you know, memory uh, of being there. You, you can only hope that all your games go well while you're there. Um, I ended up refereeing seven games at, at that Olympic Games, and thankfully everything went pretty well. Um, on the second Olympics in 98 in Nagano, that was a completely different scenario because that was the first year that the NHL players were involved. And I believe that, that a part of the, the thought process in me being selected for that was 
based on the fact that I had previous Olympic experience, um, but I also had professional experience in hockey. So even though I was limited in the number of games I could work, that was based on the percentage of NHL players playing in any, any given game. Right. Um, they still liked, I think, the, the previous international experience and professional experience. But a, a completely different feeling going to an Olympics with the National Hockey League there. So I always wanted to ask a, an, an Olympic official this question because obviously you're there for a reason. You, you have you have the games you're going to work, and like you said, you had ambitious ambitious schedules. But do you do you also get a chance to really partake in the whole Olympic experience, see other other events, deal or interact with other athletes, or do, are you pretty much in a in kind of a bubble? You know, the first Olympics when I was in France, it was kind of like being in a small town. It was kind of like being in a Bale, Colorado, um, even a little bit smaller than that. We had a little bit of freedom and flexibility. We were within um, a short drive to like three different events, um, downhill skiing, um, slalom skiing. And ironically, from the back patio of my hotel room, I could see some of the skiing events. Um, so we participated in the opening ceremonies. Um, we were in attendance. You know, we, as an official, you don't march, but we were, you know, privileged to go to the opening and closing ceremonies. Um, we could go to certain events if they were within a reasonable distance. You know, in Nagano, uh, I was not able to see any other events. Um, so I, I think it just depends on any given Olympics, how many tickets they have available, and what kind of flexibility, you know, there is while you're there. Okay. And um, obviously, in addition to your work in, on the international arena, you've obviously a, a long time dedicated uh, college college ref. And then these days, you're you're now the director of officiating for the for the NCHC. Can you just talk a little bit about um, how that came about and uh, some of the challenges with being the first to help uh, develop an officiating program within an upstart league uh, like that NCHC? Well, I think I had a couple things working in my favor when when all of this came about. And first and foremost, the league was based out of Colorado Springs. Um, so, you know, my, my name was kind of in the hat because I'm from Denver and close by. The other the other thing that was important was that I had, I had started two other officiating programs from scratch. Um, one was with Thriller Hockey International, mm-hmm. um, which was a much bigger job than people realized because... We had, we had teams filled with professional hockey, ice hockey players, and they were spread everywhere from Montreal to Los Angeles um, and everywhere in between. So I, I had started that program. They never had a director of officiating before. Um, then I went to the West Coast Hockey League, and I did the same thing. I started an officiating program basically from scratch. Um, so I, I think logistics um, and geography worked out well for me, but it was also the previous experience I had starting programs and then just combined with the officiating experience I had. So I, I was very fortunate um, that those things worked in my favor. Can you talk a little bit about the working in working in roller hockey? Obviously, <coughs> it certainly had uh, had quite a quite a, uh, a couple of years where it was really super popular. And I don't know if it's kind of died off now a little bit, but but just some of your thoughts about about being involved with roller hockey. It looks like it, a lot of fun. It, it was pretty amazing because I didn't know what to think of it at first. I actually refereed a year before um, in in roller hockey international and. You know, I, I remember getting my skates. I, I had to order skates from CCM, and I got the skates the night before I was going to go and referee my first game. Um, there was a rainstorm outside, so I practiced skating on my parents' patio, and that was the only roller hockey skating experience I had before my first game. 
Um, so it was crazy. We ran into all kinds of crazy things. If if you had a little bit of oil on the floor, it was going to cause mayhem. If you had a little bit of water on the floor, it was going to cause mayhem. And uh, from that aspect, it was interesting, the, the personalities that we had involved. Um, you know, there were actually a lot of big ice hockey names involved in roller hockey. Um, Dave Tiger Williams is, is one. Mm-hmm. So there, there were a lot of interesting people involved. It was, you know, 99% professionalized hockey players that they preferred that to going home and working on the farm or doing some other part-time job. So it afforded them the opportunity to keep playing hockey year-round. Um, so that was an interesting aspect of it. And in, in my second year there, I actually rewrote the Roller Hockey International rulebook um, because we, um, from a ticket sales sale standpoint, um, we grudgingly added fighting to roller hockey um, because you have to sell tickets, and that was something that we knew did. Um, we added body checking um, to it to make it look more like a professional ice hockey game. So that, that was one of the tasks that I had was to completely rewrite that rule book and, and basically make it similar to a professional ice hockey rule book. Um, so they, they were all interesting experiences, but when you're on wheels and you're on the court, um, the most dangerous thing is forgetting that you're on wheels <laughs> because the, the, the games become very real. Um, from an ice hockey standpoint, you think you're in an ice hockey game, and you, you always felt like you were, that's how you felt when you were at a game. So... But we had some really good markets, um, St. Louis, San Jose, um, Los Angeles. You know, in, in some of those markets, we were working with twelve or 13,000 people were at those games. Wow. So it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of good memories, crazy memories. Well, i got to put that on my bucket list of learning how to stop. On I never figured it out. <laughs> I used to just run into the boards. Uh, I also wanted to talk to you about, uh, we'll call it your, your day job. Uh, you are a police officer with uh, Louisville, uh, Colorado, and uh, I just wanted to get some of your thoughts about the correlation between being a, an on-ice official or an on-roller court official and being being a police officer. Yeah, it's a, I don't think, I, I think if you studied, you know, rosters from different leagues, different levels of hockey, that you'd actually find more police officers that are referees than you would ever imagine. And I think reason being is that the jobs are so similar. You know, to be successful as a referee or a cop, you have to have certain qualities or a certain, um, you're, you need to have certain qualities or characteristics, such as um, you need to be a confident person. You need to be able to work without a lot of support. You, you have to be able to take criticism. But at the same time, you need to be able to make quick decisions, quick decisions with, without a lot of notice. Um, so refereeing a hockey game, you make quick decisions, you know, and that's all based on judgment. Um, as a police officer, you do the same thing. Um, another major similarity would be, you know, a rule book versus, like in Colorado, the Colorado Revised Statutes. So, so work as a, as a police officer, I'm working from Book of Statutes, and we have a rule book. And, you know, every, everything is based on interpretation. So if you have a black and white referee, um, you've heard that terminology before, and that could be a less effective referee because he knows nothing but the rules, but he doesn't know how to implement the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing on the police side. If you have somebody that's going to interpret every statute 
you know, word for word, that's really not going to be a successful police officer. Um, so if you have the ability to dive into the gray areas, learn how to interpret rules or interpret laws and kind of do what's best for the situation, you know, that's where you find success. But I, I think the biggest thing is just personality based. Um, you, you know, you have to be confident. You have to, to show ability to take charge of situations. Um, you, you know, you have to be able to communicate, which is, is probably the very biggest one, to be honest with you. Um, both are based on communications to be successful. So, well, you, you mentioned you were talking about that in your last presentation, just talking about de-escalating, I mean, uh, events on, on the ice. I mean, where, you know, you, you certainly want to try to give a coach the, the time to, to listen to his grievances, but there's only so much time. So, but you see, you seem to be very effective in, in terms of talking about how to, how to kind of get the, get, turn the temperature down, so to speak. Yeah. And it, you know, a lot of that comes from the police side too, because we, you know, there's specific training that you go to and, and one special training was week long training, basically in de-escalation. And those are, that training is based on some of the people that we deal with in society. You know, almost every day we're going to be dealing with somebody that has a mental illness. Um, we're going to be dealing with somebody that's that's overdosed on drugs. And um, we're going to be dealing with, you know, domestics or things like that. Um, so you learn how to talk to people in different situations and and try to figure out the best way to communicate with them. You know, and, it, and sometimes you get a little bit desperate, but you keep trying to figure out ways. Um, the most effective way is to let somebody be heard and listen to what they have to say. Um, because that's what most people want. They just want to be heard. They want to say their piece. And as I mentioned in the presentation, if a coach is angry, that's one thing. If they're go if they're over the top, there's not a lot you can do in the time given for a game. But if a coach is angry, but you're able to de-escalate and bring him back down, you know, then you can turn that into a productive conversation. Absolutely. I, I would imagine, you know, you, you hear the phrase all the time in hockey, read and react. And I would imagine there's no greater skill to have when you're when you're in life or death situations such as being a police officer than being good at reading and reacting. Yep. It helps. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I also want to just ask you finally just about um, the, the correlation between the two. I mean, two two amazing fraternities. I mean, the fraternity of, of being in law enforcement and the fraternity of being a an official and uh, just just I guess cl in closing your how proud you are to, to have the the privilege of, of, of being involved with not just one great fraternity but two yeah and I, uh, I I don't think I can ever explain how tight both of those fraternities are um, but I can tell you that there's a direct correlation as to why they are um, you know for example if you're refereeing a hockey game and there's 14,000 people in the stands you have you have three friends on the ice with you and that's all you have in that building. Um, you don't, the fans are not going to be appreciative of you. The coaches in, in a lot of cases are not going to be appreciative of you, nor are the, the players in a lot of cases. Um, you have three partners, you rely on those partners, you all take criticism together, you all battle through a game together, and you know that's your lifeline, is that team that you work with. And, and I think that draws people closer together because you work under um, difficult circumstances. And, and that draws, you know, your friendships get a little bit deeper, mm -hmm. you know, when you experience those things. Um, in law enforcement, especially in this day and age, um, with, with everything that's going on in society um, right now, it, it's the same thing when, um, you know, there's some nights I work, we only have three people, we're, we're understaffed. Um, it happens all over the country, but when you are working with two other people and everything relies on them, you know, um, 
um, responding to the same things that you do, responding the same way you would, looking out for each other all the time. Those are things that are going to draw you closer in the friendship. So um, they, they're very tight knit. Both are very tough jobs. Um, there, there's not a lot of thanks sometimes for either job, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's where you pick all that stuff up from your partners, um, you know, and you, you kind of pick that up inter- internally. Right. Well, it might be a thankless job, but you've certainly done mastered both of them and do both very well. And I just want to thank you for taking the time today to talk and also for, uh, you know, just being here this week at the at the advanced uh, officiating symposium. So thank you, Don. Appreciate yeah, thank it. you for having me. And again, uh, you never say no to these things. And they, they always turn out to be awesome. They always turn out to be a lot of fun, meet a lot of people, um, talk to a lot of old friends. So um, awesome, awesome opportunity and experience to be here. All right. Well, thanks again, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another USA Hockey Magazine podcast. This has been the USA Hockey Magazine podcast.